Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. Um, I'm Greg Ashman. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by language and literacy expert Amina McLean. Welcome, Amina. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, now, um, you trained, I believe, and correct me if I've got this, this wrong, because these are areas outside my area of expertise, but I believe you trained as a speech language pathologist. Um, is that right? Yep. That's so, right. yeah. Uh, Let's get let's start really basic um, and explain what a speech language pathologist is. That's a good question because I don't think it's a very well understood profession. I think it's pretty well understood in education, but um, speech language pathology brings together um, language, linguistics, cognitive science, anatomy, physiology, lots of different disciplines. And we work with language, literacy, speech, voice, fluency, cognitive communication, social skill development, lots of things that are really to do with what exists in the interpersonal space between people. Wow. So it's, uh, I think some people might have a picture of like the, the person in the king's speech who sort of coaches yeah. the king, but it's a lot, it's more than that. It's to do with, it's not just about speech, is it? It's about, um, about reading as well would be involved in there. Yeah, so broadly, I think there's, there's two branches of speech pathology. There's communication, and so many things fit within that. So there's nonverbal communication, there's verbal communication, there's written communication, there's what we call um, multimodal communication, where we might use um, technology, for example. Um, and then there's the, also the swallowing, eating, drinking, and swallowing branch of, of speech pathology too. So it's a really broad discipline and you end up kind of choosing a specialty, I suppose, whether you intend to or not. And it just happened for me, um, not really with any real planning, more so luck, but I ended up falling into the language and literacy space. So um, how did you, you see, once you're in, in speech language pathology, you fell into that space. What, how did you, if it, as you say, it's not necessarily a very well understood profession. So what drew you into it in the first place? Yeah, good question. I think like a lot of um, secondary school students, I really agonised over who am I, what am I going to do, how am I going to contribute? And I was always really interested in English, English language. I loved studying literature. I loved writing. I loved reading right from a young age. But I also was kind of a, a hybrid student, I suppose, because I loved maths and I loved the sciences. So my idea was to find something that brought all of that together. And so I suppose I started researching disciplines that kind of did that. And speech pathology seemed like a natural choice. I had a few different things that I was thinking about. Um, and I got a few different offers from universities. Speech pathology is the one that I took up. Uh, again, it was a bit of chance involved in that. But it was it was that that attracted it, um, me to it. Excellent. So a good career for someone who is interested in language and literacy, but also in kind of like a more scientific um, study of things as well. Yeah, definitely. And the, sort of the scientific method, but also you do learn a lot about different scientific disciplines and, you, you know, you study um, neuroscience and you study psychology and you study anatomy and physiology and generally how does the brain work and how do we process information and um, how do we, what are the motor patterns involved in speech sound production and, and lots of different things. So it is a really cool balance, I think. Now you say that, um, but uh, I trained as a teacher and we also studied psychology, um, but I think I get the impression it might be slightly different. We did things like 
uh, Vygotsky's zone of proximal development and um, and Piaget's stage theory. In fact, I'm not sure I did much of Vygotsky. The, the stuff that really stands out for me from my year PGC is um, Piaget's stage theory. Was that was that sort of stuff part of your your um, your training or, or not? I believe it got a, a cursory mention, but I don't remember it being a significant portion um, of our degree. More so, um, I think the focus was on um, how we learn and how we learn to do things and how we process information and what teaching a skill or a concept looks like. In my mind, and that's, I think, probably why I've ended up in education too, is I see lots of parallels between, or there's a lot of overlap um, between speech pathology and teaching not so much in terms of well I'd say definitely not in terms of the course content they're very different in terms of the pre-service part of the professions but I think the actual practice elements um, I actually wish the dis disciplines would work better together and got to share a lot more space because I think there's a lot for um, speeches to learn from teachers but also teachers to learn from speech pathologists. So uh, am I getting the impression that your training was fairly kind of hard-edged and, and scientific and or, or did you spend a lot of time uh in the, the kind of space that like i suppose where i'm coming from leveling with you is i have a hypothesis that teacher training is not hugely effective uh it, this doesn't come from uh, much of a a scientific study although the scientific studies are available pam snow did a study of um well was involved with it wasn't just Pam, a study of um, uh, teachers' knowledge of the kind of uh, stuff, graphing, phoneme, correspondence, all that sort of stuff that you need, presumably in order to teach phonics effectively, and found that there was an inadequacy there. But, uh, you know, I, I talked to people that trained as secondary science teachers, and, and, and they often tell me that their training was um, deficient in some way and, and largely lacking... Um, a kind of a scientific edge so for instance I don't remember and I, anyone ever talking to us about working memory now working memory obviously forms a key bit of the of cognitive load theory which is the thing that I research but even if even if you'd never if you'd had nothing to do with cognitive load theory working memory is a fairly critical concept in the whole of um, psychology in um, special education were those sorts of concepts forefronted in in your training yeah, to, to a degree. And I think they probably were more than I remember. It's more so that I've realised later and the more I learn and the more I'm in education, they go, oh, that's actually that, but by another name. So I suppose um, a really nice example, well, I suppose we're taught a lot of knowledge in a speech pathology degree. It's very heavy on theory, but there's also a huge component that's practical so learning skills getting a lot of feedback on skills and it you're right that it's um it's a, it's an evidence-based profession so everything that we do is drawn from lots of disciplines but we're taught to be very rigorous in what we do and I suppose there's two parts to that there's there's the research evidence but there's also um professional skill and judgment and we're kind of taught to pull those two things together and you know clinical or professional skill is not the be all and end all and neither is knowledge of the literature. It's about how you put those things together and that kind of reciprocity that, that goes with that. But yes, we, we were taught um, in a sense how students learn and how um, skills are developed, kind of that 
And I suppose um, speech pathology in a way, you are teaching. That, that's the point is there's a skill that a student or an adult wants and your job is to actually teach them how to do that skill, whether it's reading, whether it's speaking, whether it's how to um, form completely um, full and grammatical sentences. There's a lot of direct teaching or direct instruction in speech pathology. And I think um, a nice example of that is in, in speech pathology, we had a lot of training in developing what we call session plans. The equivalent in teaching is a lesson plan. Um, just in speech pathology, you're doing it one-on-one -on -one or a small group rather than a whole class. And that, that's a different scenario. But we had rigorous training in that. And you have your session plan, it starts out with a, um, a session goal, which equates to a learning intention. And then you have to write your procedure, which is actually how you'll run the session step by step. And then we had to provide um, references from the literature as to why we'd chosen those procedures and why we thought they'd be most effective. Gosh. And then you have to develop your kind of contingencies up and down, or we call them step up, step down, as in if the student performs better than we expected, we've got something for them to go on with that's more complex. Or they perform um, at a lower level, we've got a way to step it down and provide them more support. And then the next step is you have a section where it's um, modelling prompts and cues. So all the things that you'll provide, but then how you'll fade from maximal to minimal support. And then the final section is what does success look like? How you kind of measure it? So you start out with that framework um, and all the way through both the knowledge and training parts of the degree, you're working with that kind of level of detail and support and scaffolding. So you become really good at kind of monitoring student performance and um, that sort of thing. And I think those elements of speech pathology are what I really loved to bring to teaching. But it was a really thorough training. I was really happy with, with I felt ready to practice as a speech pathologist as much as I've learned far more out practicing than I did in my degree. It was a really good foundation. That's quite, that bit about having to justify the moves you make in the, session lesson um by referring to evidence um is completely absent my experience of anything in teaching and that seems to me to be the most um big the biggest difference between what you describe um and um did uh, did anyone ever talk to you about like constructivism or or what that direct instruction was like bad or oppressive or any of that sort of thing did that creep in there at all not, not at all. In fact, I think it's, we call things by different names in speech pathology, yeah. but I would say the way that we were taught to implement therapy or instruction, intervention, whatever you want to call it, explicit instruction is often best practice in terms of the literature. It depends what you're teaching. So for example, in, in speech or in literacy, explicit instruction is our technique for intervention. You're explaining the concept you're modeling the concept, you're modeling the skill, you're providing maximal support for the student, like what's the equivalent of guided practice with feedback. Um, and then you're giving them tasks for during the week that's independent practice. So I would say the opposite of that. Um, there are some things in speech pathology, and this comes back to um, that idea of kind of biologically primary and secondary knowledge in that with oral language acquisition or communication more broadly, that's a biologically primary skill. So a lot of the interventions or, you know, quotation marks, their interventions for language uh, occur in kind of natural contexts. 
And if you're able to talk a lot to a child and engage in a kind of an incidental way, the skill will develop. So there are some areas of speech pathology where it is more about play, interaction, a language-rich environment, but we certainly were never told explicit teaching is bad. There was, there was none of that um, in speech pathology. So biologically primary, um, we probably ought to explain that just in case people listening aren't quite um, clear. So do you want to have a go at that? Oh, you're putting me in the, um, in the hot seat, Greg. You're far more knowledgeable in this domain than I am. But the way I conceptualise it is that the biologically primary knowledge, as humans, we've kind of evolved to have these innate skills or skills that are fairly readily acquired by almost all children as they develop. So the capacity to kind of speak and listen, basic social skills, problem-solving skills, those sorts of things. And then we've got our biologically secondary knowledge that we haven't really evolved to be able to do independently or learn in independently. And arguably that's one of the purposes of school is to impart this knowledge, but it's skills that require explicit teaching, like learning to read, like learning to write well, playing particular musical instruments, doing particular mathematical problems. Is that a fair? Oh, I absolutely spot on. <laughs> I, I think that's, yeah, absolutely spot on. I, um, now, we'll just change tack slightly because um, I understand that um, uh, you're about to make a, a bit of a career move and you're moving to uh, Docklands Public School um, in, um, in Melbourne. Um, and uh, would you tell me a little bit about the school um, and why it is you've decided to make a move and, and go and work there? Yeah, good, good question. I've had a few different career moves in and around education over the years. Um, I've been at La Trobe University the last five years. Um, I started out there as um, Professor Pam Snow's research assistant. I think she's been a guest on your podcast. Um, and then I moved into teaching and research, and I've been doing that for the last four years or so. Um, higher education is not in a great space at the moment, but also I had... Um, this opportunity at Docklands Primary School come up and a couple of other things that I'm going to be doing next year. And when I weighed up the pros and cons of staying in academia and moving back at, to the coalface, that kind of won me over. Um, I, I suppose what I'm most excited about is being able to put research into practice. And that's my favourite thing to do anyway. I do a lot of work directly with teachers and in schools. And I, it's important to me that I don't just know stuff, that I can do stuff. And I, I want to be able to do that. And I think there's a, a huge amount of momentum at the moment in terms of um, particularly the science of reading and how we implement best practice. And it's really exciting to be a part of a school where the principal and the assistant principal, um, you know, we share values and share ideas about what um, best practice can look like in literacy, but the curriculum more broadly. Um, so yeah, I, I am going to Docklands Primary School, which is a brand new primary school right in um, the heart of Melbourne. It opened up really just due to demand. The surrounding schools um, have really outgrown the demand of the area. Lots of people are moving into CBD apartments. So we're starting out very heavy in foundation in year one. Um, I think it's five or six. It could change. There's still more enrolments coming in, but five or six foundation classes. Gosh. A few, a few year one classes and then a two, three class and then a four, five, six class. So it's going to be pretty interesting um, yeah. in terms of delivering the curriculum to such a, um, you know, bottom heavy group. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to be able to be part of a school 
from conception and to build things the way we want them to be built rather than thinking about having to change things or change practices. So I'm going to be leading literacy. Um, so within that, looking at what our curriculum canon should be, um, I'm writing scope and sequences for F to six uh, reading and F to six writing. Uh, I'm going to be managing the assessment program. We're going to have a response to intervention framework, which is where you have your tier one best practice instruction, tier two additional top-up support, tier three intervention for students who struggle. So I'm going to be managing that, um, doing a lot of coaching in the classroom and in charge of sort of a whole school professional learning program. We've got some new graduate teachers and teachers coming from lots of other different schools. So as a way of ensuring um, we're all on the same page, we're all working from the same knowledge base and developing some skills as well. Excellent. Wow. Well, well, good luck with that. So um, it's really exciting. The idea it's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've fancied it in the past, um, the idea of starting a, a school, uh, you know, brand new. Um, I've never ended up in one, but it, 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 the idea to shape it from the very beginning and build the culture and everything that you, you want um, to be in place, it's really exciting. So I think you'll enjoy that. Um, yeah. Now, in, just in terms of that, so we, we've kind of touched on this already, but I'd like to dive into this a little deeper uh, with a couple of questions. So, um, and it's a fairly big question, this, but we'll, we'll get there. What do you think are the most effective methods for teaching literacy? And by literacy, um, this is one of my bugbears. I mean like reading and writing, whereas every, lots of things these days gets called literacy. And I think that's not helpful. Uh, because we get confused about what that means. So like PISA assesses students' um, scientific literacy, apparently, not their science knowledge, scientific literacy. Anyway, we'll just set that aside. But what's the most effective methods for teaching um, literacy? Why do you think they're the most effective methods? Um, and just, and I can repeat, I'm asking you three questions in once here, which is probably going to overload you a bit, but we'll, we can come back to it again. Um, Many of the teachers, and obviously, again, I'm interested in this contrast between your experience and teachers. Many of the teachers um, I know would say that their views on effective teaching methods have changed over time. And I'm wondering whether that's something that uh, has happened to you or whether it's been fairly constant. So I'll, I'll re repeat, most effective methods, why you think the most effective methods and have your views on that changed over time? Yeah, um, and I agree with you about what, literacy is I think literacy has become this kind of amorphous beast that no one really knows what it means anymore and the Australian curriculum's not much help there because literacy skills sit in language and in literature and all of those strands get a bit confused but um yeah when I'm thinking about literacy it's the same it's it's learning to read and learning to write and I see learning to spell and do handwriting sitting in, within writing um despite all of the um I don't know what to call it the argument and the unrest in the literacy space there's a lot of research reading is one of the most well <laughs> researched areas um, and I suppose within reading we need to talk about it as word level reading so that's made up of our kind of decoding skills words we've orthographically mapped so we, we know them by sight um, we're talking about reading fluency reading comprehension knowledge of vocabulary and the background knowledge we bring to reading 
I think there's always more to know, but I think we've got a really solid knowledge base about how all of those skills develop and sort of the multiple skills that are involved in those individual aspects of reading. Um, and we know from the research that explicit teaching of those skills is required and is more effective than less explicit approaches. The same with writing. I'd say I know a lot more about reading than I do about writing, but I'm trying to um, learn more and more about writing as I go along. You sort of can't exist in the reading space without being interested in, in writing as well. And yeah. that reciprocal relationship too, if you work on writing, you improve reading comprehension. Um, but again, with writing, we've got quite a lot of literature on handwriting, how much time's required, effective techniques, um, sentence level writing instruction, writing extended text, um, you know, use of vocabulary in, in writing. We know a lot. Um, and again, explicit teaching for writing is required and is far more effective than student directed or, or less explicit approaches. For me, I suppose the debate seems to be around people deciding how much adult mediation they're comfortable with in student learning. Um, and it exists in literacy and, and other spaces as well. But that's certainly my approach is explicit instruction. And within that, I, um, you know, I'm talking about, well, there's lots of research by, you know, Engelman and Rosenshine and um, my particular approach is that kind of explicit direct instruction approach by um, Hollingsworth and Ibarra. But being clear about what am I teaching today? How am I gonna model those skills? How am I gonna get kids to practice those skills? Um, how am I going to get them to kind of um, revisit those skills and revise those skills? How am I going to gradually accumulate that knowledge base and um, link it to what's previously been taught? And within that, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that links really well to my speech pathology knowledge. That, that makes sense to me, which I think was the other part of your question is, has my knowledge changed over time? Um, I don't think I've had a... Um, a moment of enlightenment where I go, oh, well, all my foundations have been shaken, but I certainly know a lot more than I used to know. But my foundation in speech pathology, and I feel really lucky that that was the first degree that I ever did because it, it kind of made sense to me. And the more I learned about explicit teaching or the kind of the various processes involved in learning to read and write, I kind of went, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And that's it kind of made sense in terms of how I've been trained and how I was already working. Um, and I don't think there was anything where I, went, I really need to change my, my mind about that. Um, it was more, yeah. how much more can I learn about it, if that makes sense? Yeah, so th that's interesting because a lot of the teachers uh, I talked to would have had that kind of epiphany moment where, they, but of course, if, you, if you're trained in effective methods and they're effective, you, you don't, what happened to us is that we were trained in ineffective methods. We couldn't get them to work. And then someone said, well, actually, despite what you were told, they're not, those are not effective methods. And then you have the epiphany. And things like, I mean, the, the damage that we've done over the years with ideas, and I think it's about, I think it comes from a good place. I think it comes from trying to respect children as individuals and empower them. But this idea that they should do writing free writing with invented spelling and and just write loads of stuff that is unintelligible and wrong and that somehow at the back end of that we can give them a few tips or a bit of feedback and by repeating that process they will get better it, it doesn't 
it's not logical. It doesn't make any sense logically. But it's, uh, I think, my view is it comes from a deeply ideological place. It's about want that wanting to centre the the children and their experiences. But of course, if you give them the tools first, the prerequisites, then they can express their views. They can make their thoughts about the world clear. They can articulate them. They're not going to have that frustration. So for me, I don't really see attention there, but I'm aware that a lot of people do. Um, which, and, and one of those people, well, maybe not quite to the extent that I've just outlined, but um, one, of, one of the most interesting characters in uh, education in many ways is Diane Ravitch, because she's actually done the kind of like the reverse to most people that I know, in that she was a very committed, um, what they call reformer in, in the US, so very, very into uh, standardised assessments and things like that. And she wrote a book, which I love, called Left Back, which is the history of progressive education in the United States. But in recent years, the last 10 years or so, she's kind of flipped and um, become more um, a supporter of these uh, progressivist ideas. And obviously, I've gone the other way, almost in the same time scale. Um, and she wrote a blog post, um, uh, I think it was last week, um, where uh, I might have that wrong. But she basically um, objected to the term, the science of reading. She sort of objected to that. Um, because um, for various reasons that she didn't think it was a science and it's not certain and it's not 100% um, predictable and all this. And then people like Dan Willing Willingham uh, chipped in and, and said that they disagreed with that position. But Ravitch is very influential with her, her blog post and so a lot of people have been sharing this. Now, you've already used the term science of reading in our discussion, so I think I know where you sit on this. But um, would you like to... Do you, what does it, the science of reading uh, mean to you? And, and is it legitimate to call it a science or is it something much more akin to an art? Mm, good question, Greg. I think, um, I think people don't like the term science of reading because of what they associate with it. And I think that links to you know, the reading wars and what you're talking about too, about ideology and people's um, attitudes and beliefs about how these processes should occur um, for students. And I think um, I was reading what Diane Ravitch had said about, you know, there can't be a science if, if one student comes to school already being able to read and then another student learns in year three and another student learns in, you know, year six or whatever it was, so that science can't exist, if, you know, for reading. I think as a community and, and people passionate about literacy, science of reading has come about because we kind of needed a term to explain all of the bodies of knowledge that come together to inform us um, about how reading develops. And within reading, all of those skills, so that all of those kind of keys to reading, phonics, phonemic awareness, vocabulary, reading comprehension, fluency, knowledge, um, and it's, it's the same for writing. And that's informed by, you know, cognitive science, linguistics. Um, there, there's lots of disciplines that um, have contributed to the broad literature. The science of reading um, really pulls all of that together and says, well, what do we know collectively from all of these studies that have happened across all of these disciplines? So I find it a really helpful way of pulling everything together. Um, I, I don't... I don't agree with Diane Ravitch's position that there's not 
something such as the science of reading. I think it's what we collectively know about reading based on all of the scientific experiments or studies that have been done um, over time. I think it points to, and I, far be it for me to accuse Diane Ravitch of having a misconception here, but I'm, I'm a trained scientist, so my first degree is in physics. Um, so I did a physics, well, natural sciences at Cambridge, um, basically sort of majored in physics. Um, and one of the very first things we did on day one um, of, uh, you know, um, 101 physics or whatever you want to call it, is they start working out how to calculate the uncertainties in the measurements we we're making. And I think a lot of people think science is about certainty. It's about if completely causal relationships. So if I do this, then this will certainly happen. But um, not even physics is like that. And physics is the most like that of all the sciences. Um, and science can be probabilistic. So just because um, not every single kid will get to exactly the same point in a lesson, we can still say, yes, but on average, this particular approach is more effective than that particular approach. And also I think the science of reading encompasses other th things that sort of, it's not necessarily just about instruction, but that sit underneath it, like how we um, perceive words. Um, I, you'd know much more about this than I do, but you know, how we, uh, what happens in the brain when you're processing language and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, so, but I think it's quite common. I've seen this argument a few times now about the science of reading where people, basically say, and there's a, a book, um, or th there's almost an entire book that makes this argument. So Gert Biester's um, The Beautiful, oh, I ought, to, I ought to have remembered the name before I started talking about this. Um, beautiful Air. Anyway, he wrote this book where basically he said that um, all everyone's wrong about education because they treat it as if it's certain that if you put this input in to this kid, they will get that objective. But nobody treats it that way. No one thinks of it that way. And it doesn't have to be certain in order for uh, us to be able to have a science of it. Sorry, I'm ranting, but um, I'll... No, but I think they're all really good points, Greg. And I think it points to also in education and coming from a more scientific discipline into education, there's different ways of, of thinking and conceptualizing these terms. And you're right that I think people think science, oh, let's turn you know, each classroom into a lab experiment, or we have to all be robotic and rigid in how we do things and every child is exactly the same. And it's, it's not that at all. It's science is a body of knowledge. And in reading, we have this immense body of knowledge. And it's about saying, well, based on what we know, if we do practice X, Y, and Z, this is gonna give students the best chance of success. There's lots of factors we can't control. There's some factors that we can kind of only partially control, but we do know about effective teaching methods more broadly and particular approaches within reading or writing that give the most children the best chance of succeeding. And I think, I mean, that's to me what reading science means. Absolutely. Okay, so the other thing that's happened recently, Sarah Mitchell, um, the New South Wales Education Minister, uh, who I've actually taken issue with in the past over um, uh, a completely separate issue around suspensions, but we'll put that to one side. We won't talk about that. Um, she's come out um, a couple of days ago and said that New South Wales would roll out a UK-style phonics check in all uh, state schools. And this follows, obviously, the UK's... Well, I say UK, it's really England. I don't think the 
not sure the other constituent nations of the UK use the foreign exchange, but I might be wrong. Um, so that follows obviously the example of England or the UK, and then South Australia introduced foreign exchange. Um, I think they piloted it first and then they went all in. And then this year in New South Wales, they piloted it. And now Sarah Mitchell is saying that they're going all in. Um, so what do you, could you explain maybe what the phonics check is and, and what you think about it, your yeah. position on it? Um, yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm fully supportive of a phonics check. Um, it's a screening tool. It's only ever been intended to be a screening tool and it's measuring just one aspect of reading. Um, it's not a total measure of reading, it's just measuring how students' decoding skills are developing. So how well they're learning how speech maps to print, do they understand those phoneme, grapheme correspondences. Um, there's a level that students should achieve to be where we think they should be for year one. Um, so it gives us a cutoff and tells us which students are where they should be for their age and which students are not. What that then does is flags those students who are not scoring at the level they should be. And we go, okay, we need to do some further assessment and understand what's going on for that child. The point of it is um, while phonics and, and learning to decode or word level reading is only one aspect of reading, it's the access point to reading for meaning. And if we don't develop word level reading skills, we can't then develop reading for meaning and develop those more higher order and sophisticated reading skills. So the intention is to identify early those students who are struggling so we can give them more targeted instruction with um, respect to how speech maps to print in order to get them um, on the reading pathway as soon as possible. The states, um, I mean, the UK and South Australia, the critics of the phonics check have said, look, we're not seeing... Um, we're not seeing improvement in reading comprehension after this, this check has come into play. But the, the point is that that's not the intention of the check. You still need to teach vocabulary and background knowledge and reading comprehension to see improvement in reading comprehension. The point of the phonics screening check is to help with that other aspect of reading, that word level reading. And what we're seeing in um, the UK and in South Australia is that word level reading does improve because students are improving on their performance on the phonics check. The other positive aspect, and we've seen this more recently in South Australia, is teachers' knowledge of phonics and word level reading is improving because it's become a part of the screening process. So because they've had to identify who's doing okay and who's not and then provide appropriate support, professional learning has come along with that and they've improved their knowledge of how students learn to read. So there's been that that secondary benefit, I suppose. So I, I fully support it. Um, I don't think we do enough to monitor how early literacy skills are developing in our schools across Australia. There's different approaches in states and territories. We've got way too many students not developing those essential skills early um, and it really holds them back throughout their schooling. We need to be literate as soon as possible to access the curriculum. Now, as I understand it, the, the phonics check uh, contains uh, uh, half the words are, are real words and half the words are like made up words like dib or something. Now, yep. um, a, a lot of the people that object to the check point to this and say, why are we getting kids to read words that aren't real words? And possibly one way to get around that objection is to, instead of having these non-words or pseudo words or whatever in, in the list, we could just have uh, the phonics check all real words um, what, what would be the problem with doing that? Why wouldn't we do that? Well, the problem is 
students may have um, seen these words before and they may have been told what these words are as whole words and never had to learn the phoneme graphing correspondences. We have two, and I'm sure lots of your um, listeners, Greg, would be familiar with this, but we have kind of two roots that we use, two different roots we use when we're reading words. We've got the lexical root or the whole word root, and we've got the non-lexical root, which we use when we're actually sounding out or reading, decoding through a word and going through those phoneme grapheme correspondences. So the phonics check is an assessment of that non-lexical root and how well decoding skills are developing. Um, if we're showing them words that they've read before or had some an adult tell them before, this is what this word is, we're not actually assessing, well, we don't know whether or not we're actually assessing their decoding skills or whether we're assessing their memory for words that they have learned as whole units. So that's the whole point of assessing um, words that have been made up. It's not because we expect them to come across words that are made up as they're reading. Having said that, there's lots of interesting and made up words in lots of children's literature, but that's what we're assessing, the strength of that non-lexical root, which is essential for learning word level reading. Yeah, you get this, a lot of people say, like, it's almost cruel to get kids to read these non-words. But if you look at Harry Potter, there's non-words strewn throughout it, although like Hogwarts and all that sort of, like they're, they're, they're all words that, and people's names. So they're all words that you couldn't um, know unless you could use your, your phonics decoding skill to work out how they're supposed to sound. Um, yeah. And then, I think, yeah. No, go on. I was just I mean, the only question really that we need to ask is, do we want to know how well a student's decoding knowledge is developing? Do we want to know that? Yes or no? If yes, use the phonics screening check. Kids enjoy it. It takes a couple of minutes. Um, I, I, I think it's, um, it's just another storm in a teacup, which unfortunately have a lot of them in, in literacy. And talking of which, um, one of the things that Sarah Mitchell said in her article which actually made me wince when I read it. She said, um, what was it? She said something like, oh yeah, that, that, that we need to take a broom to education faculties. Uh, and she compared phonics skeptics to anti-vaxxers. Now, it made me wince. Uh, it's not that I completely disagree with Mitchell there. I think we do have issues with education faculties. Um, and there is some similarity between denying the evidence around um, the phonics instruction and denying vaccines. But I just wondered whether, and I did highlight this on my blog, so I'm, you know, um, I'm probably about to contradict myself, but I wonder whether it is the best tactic, like for winning hearts and minds here um, and winning people over. I just, I wonder if you had any, any thoughts on that in, in trying to convince people around phonics. Yeah, I, I, have, I have many thoughts about that. Um, I, um, Jordan Baker, who wrote the article, amazing journalist and does some great education reporting. And, you know, I, I really agree with a lot of what um, Sarah Mitchell is, is doing. And I think she's really switched on. And I suppose that's what makes stuff like this such a shame because we know, and there's, there's a decent amount of literature about this, um, using strong language causes further polarization. And I think even, you know, I think she said something like, you know, the war's over, the war's been won. And I think even, and you know, I'm not preaching because I've been guilty of this plenty of times myself, talking, even talking about the reading wars, 
it, it automatically makes people feel like there's a side to be on and I need to pick a side. And then, then you develop this kind of um, this group think or this tribalism where this, there's this one way of thinking or this, this other way of thinking. And it's, you know, tensions are already high when it comes to, um, to reading science. And I, I, and I think stuff like that, I think, I think even Jordan explained it as the controversial phonics check. And I think, again, that pricks people's ears up of what's controversial about it. What should I actually think or feel about this? Why is it controversial? Um, I think language really matters. I actually, um, I wrote a blog post, I think it was this year, it's been such a long year that I forget when things have happened, but about, I think it was called something like, can I change your mind about changing minds? And a lot of our tactics that we engage in either consciously or subconsciously actually end up making people disagree with you even more than they already do. And a lot of the language we use, I think on both sides of the debate in phonics, the way people conceptualize things actually ends up just further cementing what people think and believe is the right position. I certainly think if you go to somewhere like edgy Twitter, um, that's what you see. Like I don't, but I've got a little bit more, I've got a little bit more sanguine about this over the years. I mean, I write a polemical blog. I, I, I say what I think um, because that's how I started off. I started off writing pseudonymously and it was like an escape because I, I was like frustrated by the world of education that we're in. And, the, the, um, uh, and then I realized that it, uh, over time that actually what I was saying was fine and it didn't need to be pseudonymous or anything, but it's still quite a polemical blog. And you could say, well, am I polarizing people? And that's what a lot of people um, sometimes feed back to me. And I don't think I've ever convinced anyone to change their mind on Twitter, um, debating on Twitter. But what I do get is I get people who I've never interacted with on Twitter or who have never commented on my blog, um, contact me through the contact page of my blog and tell me that their views have changed as a result of reading my blog or of, of seeing the debates that are taking place. And I think that um, I, I'm still not sure about Mitchell's approach and I think there's some politics involved there, but um, people have already taken a position it's going to be very difficult if, if their identity is um, somehow embedded in that position, it's going to be very difficult to change their mind. But there's a lot of people out there who are, who are not committed one way or the other, who are just trying to do their best, who are getting frustrated. And then they watch these debates and they um, look for the, the different points on either sides. And then they give, they give value to the side that I think is, that they think is, is making the more valid claims. I don't know if you ever saw the, um, phonics debate um, that um, Jen um, Buckingham and um, well, various other people were involved in a few years ago. Um, and again, what, what a lot of people reflected on was the quality of the arguments on one side of the discussion versus the other. Now, I don't think any of the participants <laughs> changed their mind as a result of that debate, but a few people might have, have seen it and, and change their view as a result perhaps I don't know I don't know what you think about that yeah. no I, I agree and we we all have um this tendency I suppose cognitively to seek out you know there's confirmation bias but we're all and we're all most comfortable receiving information that affirms what we already think or believe and we know when it comes to kind of your um, attitudes or beliefs we all have 
what's called this latitude of acceptance, this window, and some of us have a really narrow one and some of us have a really large one, which is our ability to consider information that's different to the information that we have. And we know from um, cognitive research that the more your um, identity or your ego is involved in what you do, or the stronger your opinions are about the topic, the smaller your latitude of acceptance or the smaller your capacity to actually change your mind. And it's, I think it's, you know, it's the same in the work that you do and, and similar in the, in the work that I do that it's not, for me, I've got no interest and this might sound awful, but it's not an effective use of my time to argue with people who have no interest in changing their minds about practices in literacy. And, you know, it's unpleasant for them and it's unpleasant for me. And I've just, you know, a year or two ago, I just said to myself, I'm not going to do that on Twitter anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to get into arguments and I really don't anymore um, because it's just, it's frustrating for me and them and it, it goes nowhere. I'm much more interested in changing people's minds who don't really have a strong opinion or they're really open to other information. They actually have never kind of been told exactly what to think or never really, um, you know, become wedded to an idea. And there's all, so many people in education out there. I feel like there's real momentum at the moment and a real thirst for knowing better and being able to do better in, in terms of our practice. Um, I think that's where the real, real change can lie. And I think, you know, I know your blog really influences people in, in that domain. There's lots of people who are curious and open. And I think, unfortunately, the people who are least curious and least open are the ones that dominate the discourse sometimes. Yeah, and I have to say, like, on my early days of Twitter, back in sort of 2012, I would engage in these three-day-long debates, you know. Um, I don't really do that now. Uh, there are some things that I think are important enough um, to publicly um, counter. Um, uh, but what you find on Twitter is that you can't say everything that you need to say about something in a tweet, and then, so you'll make your position and then someone will point out one of the things that you haven't been able to say and they'll sort of criticise you for that. Uh, and so you end up with these great big long clarifications and qualifications, um, where, whereas if people had read you um, the first tweet with, um, you know, sympathetically, uh, well, with a, more of an open mind, and you get these, these sort of debates about definitions and things, we'll stop about that. I want to ask you my next question. So aside from phonics... The other great debate in literacy teaching is around the role of content knowledge, background knowledge. You've alluded to background knowledge a few times. So first of all, where do you sit on that? Um, actually, we'll just go with that for now. Where do you sit on that? Yeah. Look, for me, both, both matter. I think you can't have knowledge without skills and you can't have skills without knowledge. And I see it as a, a reciprocal relationship my um, personal view is in the very early years in, in sort of foundation and year one, we really should be giving students the skills that give them access to knowledge. And then it becomes that reciprocal relationship. I mean, there's skills involved in reading comprehension, but there's lots of knowledge that makes reading comprehension better. So I think I, I don't sit in either camp. I think knowing a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff is one of the most incredibly important things we can do for students, but also teaching them word level reading, teaching them a lot of vocabulary, teaching them how to actually read for comprehension, teaching them to write sentences well, paragraphs well, extended text well, um, as well as filling them with knowledge 
is is where it's at. So I, I don't sit in a kind of knowledge or skills camp. I think bring it all together. Do you see teaching vocabulary then as teaching a, a skill? Because I would probably think of that as a body of knowledge. It is, but there's parts of it that are skill. So I think the more you know, the more you add to your vocabulary, but I see it as um, a skill in terms of there's, okay, so that you can explicitly teach vocabulary. I would see that as imparting knowledge, but then you can also teach students how to independently pick apart words and find more themes in order to work out meaning independently. Um, You can teach them how to, um, you know, if they're on their own and they're stuck and they don't have an adult to help them with the meaning, you can teach them how to look at the context of the sentence and what the word is acting as in a sentence, things like that that are, and it's the same in kind of reading comprehension. A lot of it is knowledge, but there's some things that they need to be, knowledge I see as what you know, skills I see as what you can do kind of with what you know. So I think there's there's a part of vocabulary that's, skill-based a big part of it's knowledge-based but some of it is skill-based in terms of being able to problem solve yourself what about um so if you so lots of schools that would um pursue what might be called like a knowledge-rich curriculum so my my place we call it a knowledge-rich curriculum uh, and that's a term that's common in the uk uh they would look at all aspects of what they're teaching science history and they say well we, we need to make sure that students have got powerful knowledge, the sort of knowledge that they need, background knowledge they need to access um, sources of authoritative information, I know, like, uh, you know, serious newspapers and things like that. And one place this takes you and has taken a number of schools is uh, towards revisiting the kind of literary canon, you know, so uh, there are some classic texts. The one I always mention in this discussion, just because it's the one probably hit me the most, um, is 1984 George Orwell 1984 if you don't know anything about that text uh, you, you you don't understand allusions to Big Brother or that sort of thing and um, but if you do that um, you then get this curriculum if you don't watch out that looks very white and European and male um, and people then say well this idea of a canon is is racist and exclusionary and um, what, what do you think about all that and, and, and how we can think our way through that? Mm. I think, um, and one of the people I've learned the most from about this is Jasmine Lane, who I think is such an incredible educator and she just she's so early in her career and yet she just knows so much and I think, wow, have you been teaching for 50 years? She's just, and the way that I've heard her put it is that, you know, the reality is that this is kind of the knowledge base and the history that we have. It's about how we discuss it and how we present it. And for me, you know, I had this discussion recently with a teacher about, you know, and I think I've seen some discussion online as well. Like, you know, if, if a text has got um, something about genocide in it or something that's homophobic or something that's racist, do we just let's not read that text or use that text? Whereas, For me, my position would be, I think that actually we can teach the complexities and the issues and the problems through accessing our history and through accessing our text. I don't think we should be just teaching, um, you know, white male dominated history. I very much see myself as a a progressive and a feminist and as much as I'd probably get pigeonholed otherwise. Um, But I think there's a way of teaching knowledge where we can actually 
wrestle with these complexities. And I think that's part of the richness of teaching reading comprehension really well is actually looking at the words that are on the page. And what do you think using those words in this text actually made you think and feel? And why do you think the author might have chosen those words? Or why do you think the author chose to write that sentence in that particular way? Or why do you think the author actually wrote that in, and it was actually really confronting? What do you think that was about? What do you think the author might want us to consider? So there's lots of really cool things you can do in terms of reading comprehension, but also just unpacking knowledge and um, you know, complex historical um, facts and features. There's lots of ways that we can develop good skills through teaching knowledge, whether it's, whether we like it or not, knowledge and history, a lot of it is not pleasant, but knowing it is actually key to functioning as an independent adult in society and opens lots of doors to you, whether we like it or not. Excellent. So a um, couple of final questions. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, so last year, um, we, when we could still have conferences before the, the great plague came, uh, you spoke, at, yeah, you spoke at research ed in Melbourne on, um, teacher professional development. Can you just tell, tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's one of the things I'm really interested in. I suppose my key research interests are kind of literacy instruction, um, pedagogy, but professional learning is, um, a big interest of mine. And I suppose we, we know from the literature that we do have that teachers are really underprepared to teach literacy, but I think to teach more, more broadly, and I know you've written about this, you know, what to teach, how to teach it, a lot of that's missing and you've, you've figured out on the job and how well you do that depends on the school you end up in and the mentoring you have. So a few years ago, I got particularly interested in professional learning and I do a lot of professional learning in schools as well. Um, and so, yeah, the, what I did at Research Ed last year was, um, I suppose I asked the question, is professional learning effective? Um, and then how do we, what are kind of barriers and enablers for changing knowledge and changing practice in teachers? And I think it's funny because with professional learning, we have lots of kind of these ad hoc one-off sessions and we go, oh, you know, everyone knows better. And, you know, it's that, I think, um, Maya Angelou quote, when we know better, we do better. And a lot of people use that quote but it's actually not true like learning new things doesn't mean we do things any better what we know from the literature is most professional learning actually has limited effect on teacher knowledge and it has almost no impact on practice so my presentation at research ed was like how do we actually make sense of this and how do we provide professional learning that actually does change knowledge and, and change practice and the parallels actually between that and effective teaching are <laughs> quite quite um, shocking when you think about it. Who would have thought that if you're learning something new, you need lots of practice and you need lots of feedback and you need that learning to be extended over time and you need support from the people around you to actually embed that new knowledge and practice in, in what you do. So, um, yeah, I suppose my, my interest in it is how do we provide professional learning that not, is not just one-off and how do we support schools to develop a really explicit professional learning agenda, identifying knowledge gaps, identifying practices that want, we want to be improved, and then developing a really solid plan about um, accessing an expert who can actually teach us about it, but accessing somebody um, or a group of people who can actually help us develop those skills over time. I think w one of the things that we often really neglect uh, when we, when we, think about these things is that actual teaching is a very complex process 
Um, and it's highly, you know, in terms of cognitive load, it's highly demanding. And so to radically change the way you teach, um, which a lot of these programs would uh, aim to do, it, it's going to, it's not going to be, <laughs> it's just not going to work. Uh, Dylan William, I remember him talking once, I went to a, a conference, I think maybe 2011 or something, and he was speaking. And his and his thing is obviously formative assessment, and he'd got this book with all this list of these strategies uh, in the back. Formative, and he said, if you manage to embed one of those in your teaching practice over the next six months, you're doing well. And so he had this idea of having these groups of teachers come together, hold each other accountable for embedding one of those practices. I think with something like, if you're changing the curriculum, that's a bit different because you don't have to do that all in real time. Um, you don't have to. It's you're not changing your sort of habituated practice um, that you've developed over time and that's very complex and lots of things happening at once. You can actually change the curriculum more in slow motion. So you've got more of a chance there. But I don't know, I think it's, um, it, it, it should be pretty hard to change the way that people teach. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, the first part is the majority of professional learning is rubbish. But if you actually come across professional learning that's good, often people who have lots of expertise have really expert knowledge, but they don't always have expert practical skills. So even if you come across someone who really knows their stuff, they're going to tell you amazing, interesting stuff about what that area is, but they're not going to necessarily show you or tell you how to implement it. So you might learn a lot about a content area, but the most important part is how we go from knowledge to practice. That is what's often, yeah, often, often missing. And I think we don't do enough in schools to ensure, um, you know, I think it's, it's part of school leadership. It's part of school culture that we, we don't just, um, don't mind that. I'm just <laughs> calling me. Um, yeah. So we don't, I don't think we do enough in schools to support teachers to move, um, yeah, from that, that knowledge to practice point. And we just have our arbitrary PD hours, tick it off, I've done all of these sessions, rather than it being about, well, what do I want to know more about and what do I really want to hone um, in on in terms of skill development? I think that's critical. And I think you've hit a really important point there because one of the things that we do, we've done is retain stuff out of teacher notes. And we, we often use like uh, slide, slides to frame the lessons, PowerPoint slides now. And it's not, they're not let, like in non-interactive lectures where a teacher just presses slide after slide after slide. It's like almost like our interactive lesson plan. And we put stuff on the slides now rather than in the teacher notes because if the teacher forgets to do the thing that we want them to do and it's on the slide, the kids will go, aren't you supposed to do that thing? And so they hold the teacher accountable for it. It's stuff, tiny things usually that we've just discovered through our um, own processes make something a little bit more effective. Look, um, final question. Final question. Well, two parts. Okay. So, and I like to, I like to always get to this with, uh, I, I like to end with a bit of optimism. So um, what do you think is the blockage? What do you think, if you agree with the premise, what do you think uh, prevents education, the education sector from engaging more with evidence? And that doesn't sound very optimistic. So what's your solution? Um, two prongs to it. I think, um, and the two prongs are the, the problem and the solution. Um, Pre-service teacher education 
Um, we need drastic improvements in terms of um, the content that's taught, but also the skills that are taught. I think um, it's just not okay to go through a, a teaching degree and not learn enough about your content areas, but also not develop skills in terms of how to, to teach. And I think, you know, education gets away with a bit that other kind of professional disciplines are, are held to a higher standard about. So I think it's a problem, but it's also a solution. And I think there's some exciting things happening already in that space in Australia. And there's at least a lot more discussion around it. I'm really excited to be part of the um, Science of Language and, and Reading Lab and Pam Snow and Tanya Seri are leading that at La Trobe University. And we're, um, you know, La Trobe University's School of Education is, is looking at overhauling our, our, our teaching degrees at the moment. So I think there's a lot of, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that schools of education will increasingly feel that pressure and feel the need to be more accountable. There's the work that came out by um, Linda Meeks and Jen Buckingham, was it last year now, in terms of looking at what content's actually taught and what's missing. Um, so I think that's a solution. But I also think um, changing teacher knowledge and practice is um, a problem and yet a solution. And I think the power of the um, internet and the power of blogs and, and Twitter shouldn't be underestimated. And I feel like this year it's been a blessing and a curse having the pandemic because there's just been this um, influx of professional learning, freely available, high quality online expert, um, access to experts and access to really rich discussion. And what happens in education is we have this, um, you know, there's this dominant discourse or this right way of, of thinking and, and doing things um, it's kind of, yeah, it is that group think or that tribalism that I was talking about. If, if best practice actually becomes that dominant discourse, then there's actually that pressure to conform and that pressure to belong in a good way. Currently, it's kind of, it's working, working the opposite way. So I think, um, you know, schools of education need to be more accountable, better quality in terms of course content, but also that, that groundswell and that sharing of best practice. And I think that's happening more and more now through um, lots of organisations. There's, you know, for example, the Reading Science in Schools Facebook page, it's got, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20,000 members now where there's just teachers doing really good work that are generously sharing their resources and their ideas for practice with other teachers. And I think, I think that's um, where a lot of the solutions lie as well. Horizontal teacher to teacher expert to teacher, teach to expert, and that's how we'll fix it. Yep, yep, definitely. And I'm feeling, you know what, if you asked me that two years ago, I probably would have felt pretty despondent, but I really feel like there's been some momentum in the last few years. And I think the more teachers know, practicing teachers and pre-service teachers know about what they're missing out on, the more they're demanding better as well. And I think that's um, taking up a bit more space in the conversation now. Um, teachers asking for better training and you know it shouldn't be too much to ask for absolutely absolutely well thank you so much for your time and for appearing on the podcast um and um hopefully speak to you again at some point and see how you get on at docklands thanks greg that'd be great great to chat to you <laughs>